0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, our passage this morning, comes in the first four verses. The English word compassion comes from the Latin prefix cum and the Latin word passus, which means to suffer. Compassion then is the state of being in which we allow ourselves to to be moved emotionally by the suffering of another person, to be motivated to want to help alleviate or prevent their suffering. Social scientists often differentiate compassion from sympathy in that sympathy responds to suffering from a sense of sorrow and concern, but compassion responds with warmth and real care. The biblical view is that compassion really involves all of that. It involves a sense of sorrow, a bearing of burdens, a responding with warmth and care, kindness, patience, perseverance, resolve to do all you can to alleviate their pain. Most people feel that from time to time in their lives. A few might even be known as compassionate people because it is on display, it seems, so often through them. But sociologists have coined a phrase known as compassion fade, which they say is the tendency, uh, the natural tendency in human beings to experience a decreasing level of empathy and feeling... In other words, of compassion that corresponds to the increasing number of people that they encounter who suffer or are in need. They have actually documented this tendency of people to gradually turn away from compassion, particularly when they're exposed to mass suffering. A decreased ability to appreciate or mentally process the concept of pain or loss or suffering when it's on such a grand or extenuated scale. In other words, as people experienced increased exposure to those who are suffering, they seek to protect themselves by suppressing their own emotions so that they are not totally overwhelmed with the sadness of what they face in the trials and tragedies of life. Another way to say this is that we may all have compassion, but our compassion is imperfect at best. It's finite. It's limited. It might even be described as inadequate for whatever the need might be. We can, as a natural makeup of our own limitations, we can grow indifferent to the feelings of those suffering all around us. God, however, is different. He's revealed Himself to us in Scripture, and He tells us very specifically about His compassion. And what it tells us about God's compassion is that it never fades. It's everlasting. Isaiah 54.8 says, God's compassion is everlasting. Verse 10 of that chapter says, The mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall never be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 63, verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted to us, the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted to them, according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Psalm 57, verse 10, the steadfast love and compassion of the Lord extends to the heavens, we're told. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies or His compassions never come to an end. In these ways, and many, many others, God has revealed to us a deep and everlasting and perfect compassion, such that He longs to demonstrate His benevolent goodness to those who are going through real suffering. Whether that suffering is by their own doing and their own sin that they've brought agony into their life or whether they are victims of someone else, God's desire is to alleviate their burden. And so it's not surprising that when Isaiah comes to describe the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 42, this is what he says, Behold, my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my, whole, my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, he'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. There's so much embedded in that precious phrase. The bruised reed he will not break. The faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's looking at the broken person. The outcast, the one who's put off by society, their flame barely flickering, not knowing if it'll even be lit the next day, seeming as if the smallest gust of any storm could snuff it out. Those who are considered to be despicable and unclean and defiled or whatever it might be, you might assume as you look at someone like Jesus, that he would operate like everyone else, you might assume that one whose name is holy, who's described as high and exalted, you might assume that he is put off by everything that is unholy and everything that is not exalted. You might assume that that which is messy and cast down and despised and tainted... That he himself, like everyone else, would avoid those kinds of situations, would shun those kinds of people. But actually, it's the exact opposite. Christ does not cringe reaching out to touch dirty sinners and those who are numbed by suffering. It's the kind of touch and embrace precisely that he loves to do. And nowhere is that better illustrated than our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. A story about a filthy leper who comes to Jesus for healing. And what he finds is more than just physical healing. He finds a compassionate touch, a full restoration of his broken life. The kind of connection with another human being that he may have completely given up hope of ever having again. Listen to what Matthew tells us in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now this comes to us. Immediately after Jesus' teaching on the mount, his sermon on the mount, and Matthew in verse 1 pictures him coming down the mountain with the multitudes still in awe. You may remember that is the way that they finished in chapter 7, astonished and standing in awe of this man and his teaching, And here they are still following Him, and in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, the crowds begin to separate and pull back on either side. As slowly, sheepishly, a man in tattered clothing approaches Jesus, Matthew simply calls Him a leper. Now, this is a remarkable scene on a number of fronts. Lepers are not allowed inside cities and are supposed to avoid crowds. According to the Mosaic law, they were to be isolated, quarantined away from everyone else. In fact, according to the law, Leviticus 13.45, if lepers were to encounter anyone along the way, they were to stand far off and cry out, unclean, unclean, in order to warn passerbys not to get close. In fact, when Jesus encounters some lepers in Luke 17, this is exactly what they do. They stand at a distance, we're told, and cry out to Jesus. Lepers live separated lives isolated lives they were not in contact with anyone they were they were supposed to cover their faces as a matter of fact to prevent any kind of airborne illness from emanating from their breath and this man particularly Luke in his account describes him as a man who was full of leprosy. In other words, he had one of the extreme cases. There were lepers whose whole body had been engulfed and marred by their boils and their sores and their lesions. Now, in the Old Testament, there were very stringent guidelines for people who had any kind of skin disease. They were to be carefully examined as to the kind of disease. And they were to be isolated to see whether it was just some sort of temporary infection or whether it was the beginnings of leprosy. Leviticus 13 verse 2, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or that is a lesion or a spot, and if it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or the one of his sons and the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of the body. This is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, the hair in it not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked... And the disease has not spread in the skin. Then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if the disease area has faded. The disease has not spread in the skin. Then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only an eruption. The text goes on to say however if that's not the case. If the disease is indeed confirmed. Then there are very strict guidelines for what to do. Verse 45 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair hang loose, and they shall cover their upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling is to be outside the camp. Leprosy was one of the most gruesome and feared diseases in all of the ancient world. It was particularly feared in Israel because touching a leper even not only carried the risk of bacterial contamination, but it also carried the risk of eventual extreme social isolation. Leprosy was debilitating enough physically, but it had an effect that was often difficult to account for socially and spiritually. It began with a rash, an itch, a swelling, then pockets of pus formed on the skin, boils, Eventually decay of the skin, the blackening, particularly around the necks and the armpits to begin with, but even after that, extenuating into the fingertips and the toes as the skin began to die. Full-blown leprosy, or what it's known today as Hansen's disease, is a disease that currently only affects about 250,000 people each year, almost half of them in the nation of India. It's primarily a tropical disease, and so here in the United States, we have less than 200 cases a year. And thankfully, because of modern medicine, there has been developed a multi-drug treatment system where once it's identified, it can be dealt with. But leprosy in the Bible was much different. There was no turning around, there was no known cure. If it was the same as modern-day Hansen's disease, it wasn't something that just affected the topical skin, it was something that went deeper, as the biblical text indicates, even going under the skin. And it led to not just the pain and the suffering that goes along with the leprosy, but it even led to the tragic self-destruction of the individual. In his book, Unclean, Unclean, Lee Hyzinga describes some of the horrors of leprosy. He says the disease, which today we call leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. The skin in spots... Loses its original color. It gets thick and glossy and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood flow. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begins to bunch up with deep furrows between the swellings. So that your fa- the face of the inflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingertips drop off or are absorbed into the body. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By, the time, by this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition plainly as a leper. And by a touch of one finger, one could feel it all over their body. He goes on to say, one could even smell it. The skin decay of the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that a uh, disease-producing agent frequently attacks the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse. You can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper... But you can now hear His rasping voice. It's the voice of one slowly dying. Painfully dying. According to Leviticus, it rendered you ceremonially unclean. And when you're unclean, you can't enter the temple. Which means that you can't Offer sacrifices, which according to a Jew was the only way to deal with your sins, was to offer sacrifices. So if you couldn't enter the temple and you can't offer sacrifices, you had no way of dealing with your sins. And so you had no way of dealing with your relationship with God. You were cast out from people. And I'm sure you felt cast out from God. The social and mental impact was as bad, if not worse, than the physical impact. People declared unclean would go not just weeks or months, but years without ever feeling the touch of another human being, barely even feeling the notice of other humans, We here have had, over the past year, just the smallest fractional insight into the mental and emotional pain that that kind of isolation brings into the lives of people. It can be devastating. In fact, there's a large body of literature that suggests those who experience isolation in their lives are multiples, multiply more likely to be suicidal. Professor Ian Hickel of the University of Sydney said, social isolation is perhaps the most important contributing factor to suicide attempts, at least among the men in his study group. Now this comes, no doubt, because people, at least partially, are embarrassed by their disabilities, by their illnesses. There might even be a sense in which the shame of their situation, they actually welcome the isolation to begin with. They try to avoid social interaction because they feel stigmatized. They feel judged by others. Many develop, in fact, an emotional numbness, a kind of defense mechanism protecting them from any further emotional pain They don't want to feel the sting and the pain of how they're treated by other people. And so they actually become maybe somewhat comfortable, if not conflicted, in their isolation. Now, this was in all likelihood the situation of this leper. He was... No doubt one who had been in this situation, if he was full of leprosy, as Luke says, he had no doubt been in this situation for a long time. He probably had reached the point where it was easier for him to just avoid crowds, to just be alone, rather than go through all the hardship and the hassles of having to deal with people who didn't understand him, who didn't really seem to care about him. And when they saw him and all of his boils and pockets of pus all over his skin and the bulging, uh, flaking skin all bunched up around his face and his eyelids and all the dry and flaky skin, not to mention the blackened and decaying skin patches, he had to have felt the shame. I would imagine if you ask him, he would tell you it was incredibly draining emotionally. Emotionally. To even go out in public. So it's very striking to us that this leper would be so bold that when he sees Jesus and the crowd descending from the mountain, we're told by the interjection, behold, behold, We're given the idea that this shocking thing takes place around that same time, maybe that same day. He approaches the crowd and as he does, they begin to pull away from him in fear and disgust. According to the law, he's lived his life in this banishment. According to the law, he's walked around with his clothes all torn as a sign of his disease. According to the law, he's probably shamefully uttering, unclean, unclean, as he approaches. And as the crowds open up, he fixes his eyes on Jesus standing at the center of them unmoved. He walks ever more closely and Jesus just stands there. And when he gets to Jesus, all he can do is throw himself at Jesus' feet. And kneeling on the rocky soil at the feet of Jesus He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He has no question about the ability of Christ. You can do this, he says. The question in the heart of the leper is whether Jesus is willing. If you're willing, he says. The question in the heart of the leper is whether Jesus is going to treat him the same way everyone else has treated him. The question in his heart is whether Jesus is going to be repulsed by him, disgusted by him. Whether Jesus will even take notice of him. Or whether he will, like everyone else, scoot to the side and walk around him and keep going on his way. You probably had heard the stories back in Matthew 4. Remember, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that His fame spread through all of Syria, and they brought Him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed all of them. But all of those people had someone. Someone to bring them. Someone to fetch them. They came from within the towns and the cities. He wasn't sure if those healings were also meant for those who had been left out. Cast aside. Declared to be both physically and Ritually, spiritually, unclean. He doesn't know if Jesus is willing. He knows He's able. But He doesn't know if He will. It's really not even a question. It's a statement, you'll notice. He implies a question. Are you willing and are you able... I'm sure he's thinking, I've heard the testimony, I've seen the evidence. I've talked to other people and they told me how you have healed them and touched them. That's great for those people. But would you be willing to do that for someone like me, someone who everyone else has rejected and cast aside like me? Well, the story gives us the answer really to those two implied questions. The first by showing us Christ is indeed compassionate toward the hurting, He's compassionate. Hear this leper with all kinds of uncertainty in his heart. We don't know if his voice was quivering in fear as he spoke, if it was filled with tears as he spoke, or whether it was just some sort of cold resignation, almost expecting to be treated the same way as he'd been treated by everyone else, those who had pushed him aside. You can develop a kind of an emotional numbness, hardly any feeling at all. So we don't know what this guy was expressing or feeling, But we know what he was hoping for. He was hoping that Jesus would respond, I am willing. But that's not actually what he gets right away. Because before Jesus says anything, Matthew tells us Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. This would have been the first human warmth that this man had felt in years. The first touch, the first sensation of the skin of another human being pressing against his, for a moment he may have forgotten all about the healing, just been in shock at the feeling of what it was like to have another human touch you. For years people had run away, kept themselves yards away from this guy and now this man Jesus is reaching out and touching him. It's obvious from everything else we know about Jesus' ministry this touch wasn't necessary. He didn't need to touch him in order to heal him. Jesus healed people with just a word. Sometimes he healed people from miles away. Jesus didn't have to touch him, but he did. And it's clear why he does. In fact, Mark's gospel, when he tells this story, he spells it out. He says that when Jesus heard the leper, he was moved with compassion. it highlights something about Jesus' ministry that is overlooked too often. This was not a man whose only concern was guarding and imparting the truth. It wasn't for him just about teaching principles and doctrine. The glory of God was reflected in the life of Christ through a profound compassion as well as a profound truth. He was sensitive. Not only to the spiritual needs, but the emotional needs, the physical needs of the weak and forgotten. But this is an amazing scene, not only a beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ, but also a demonstration of another profound truth because according to the law... To touch a leper was a violation of the law and it would render not just the leper unclean, but you unclean. But the undefiled and holy Son of God can touch the defiled. And instead of being defiled by our uncleanness, He makes us clean just like Him. Some people have read the story and commented that this kind of touch would have put Christ in violation of the law. It would have rendered Him ritually unclean, but that really misunderstands the mystery of Christ. Far from becoming unclean, Jesus makes the unclean into the clean. Divine holiness, you see, is not defiled by touching humanness, even with all of our uncleanness. But rather, when Jesus touches that which is unclean, rather than defiling Jesus, Jesus has the power and the authority to make you completely clean. Just like on the cross, when Jesus suffered the wrath of God for us, He took our impurities And yet He Himself remained pure from sin and pure from defilement. How many people stay away from Christ because they're convinced that their sin is too heinous, too grotesque, too impure? They assume that because everyone else has pushed them away because of their sin that Christ will push them away. Or maybe they think that because someone as pure and as undefiled as Christ would not want to have something to do with them because their defilement is so great. It's true. Your uncleanness and even your guilt might be great. But Christ has the power. He has the authority And he has the willingness to clean the unclean. Now this takes us to the second part of the leper's statement that we also see demonstrated here, which not only do we see that Christ has this compassion for the hurting, but we also see as the capability to hear heal. When Christ touches the leper, he says to him simply and powerfully, I will. Be cleansed. Matthew tells us there in verse 3 and immediately his leprosy cleansed him. Here you see the power of Christ, unlike all the pseudo fake healers throughout the ages and even in our own day. There was a touch, a compassionate touch, but there was no need for ritual, there was no incantation, there was no frenzied theatrics on a stage. You remember the prophecy from Isaiah, he wouldn't even lift up his voice in the street. It wouldn't be heard. But he'd take the broken re- the bruised reed and he would not break it. He would take the flickering torch and he would not snuff it out. A compassionate touch followed by words of power. That's all it was. And it is followed by The same thing that we see in all of Jesus' healings... ...immediate eradication, erasing, complete and total healing. Unlike modern-day healers who stage their events with carefully choreographed music and lights... ...and all of those things, curated and selected subjects... ...who make claims of all kinds of invisible illnesses and vague pains... This guy's illnesses were incredibly visible. The boils and the puffy, lumpy skin all over his face and neck immediately disappeared. The white flaky skin went away. Even the blackened patches of decayed flesh immediately saw a rush of bronze color flooding over them as this guy was restored. He was completely and totally healed. No sleight of hand, no temporary psychological trick that gave the guy some sort of emotional placebo that might have momentarily masked the way he felt all over his body. This was real. And it was permanent and it was lasting. And that was confirmed in verse 4 by what Jesus asked the leper to do. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, if context means anything here, then it would seem that there were crowds all around when this took place. Jesus sternly tells him not to say anything To anyone at this point doesn't seem to be to keep it a secret. In fact, it's not to keep it a secret. He's simply to go and report it very openly to the priests. The reason Jesus tells him to say nothing isn't a matter of secrecy. It's a matter of urgency. You can see that, in fact, in verse 4 by the contrast. Say nothing to anyone but... Instead, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. In other words, don't get distracted, sidetracked, talking to everybody about what just happened to you because the process, at least according to the law, isn't complete. There was a necessary second step. If the leper wanted to be admitted back into society, Jesus, referring to the Old Testament Mosaic Law which called for provisions and regulations of of dealing with someone who claimed to have been healed from leprosy. He was to travel down to Jerusalem to the temple, present himself to a priest who would examine his entire body. He would take along with him two birds. He would kill one of the birds, then dip the other bird in the blood and set the second bird free It's a beautiful picture A beautiful picture of the death of the old life marred and painful as it was but now with the touch of Christ like a bird set free able to fly and sore. He was to wash his clothes, shave off all of his hair and bathe himself. The priest confined him for seven days. and then finally, on the seventh day, he would brought himself back for a final examination and brought a required offering, grain offering, a sin offering. And once examined by the priest, anointed the various parts of his body, he made the offering that was intended to fully restore him to society, to the temple, to worship, to God. All of this was very intentional. It was necessary. The priest, priest endorsement was necessary to be welcomed back into society. Again, this is so unlike modern day healers who shun scrutiny, scoff at anyone doing a medical examination of their so-called miracles. Jesus had no fear of that kind of scrutiny. And eventually the testimony of His healings would become so evident that the priest and the scribes couldn't deny it all they could do is say that Jesus was healing people by maybe some kind of black magic, some some sort of demonic force. But it wasn't demonic. It was righteous. In fact, it was intended in every way to restore him, not just not just in terms of society, but restore him in worship to God. the point of all of this with the priest was to give him a clean bill of health to fully endorse him re-entering society to have all the barriers and the social stigma removed to be able to engage again in friendships and relationships and loved ones just like everyone else see because when Jesus restores someone he restores them fully physically emotionally spiritually inside and out This man's restoration started on the outside with the removal of his disease, but it went to the inside. The restoration of all of his yearnings for love and connection and relationship. And it seems, most importantly, he went so deep as to restore his relationship to God. This is what Christ does. He heals When he walked on the earth he healed people outwardly and then he healed them inwardly. Today he heals inwardly and he guarantees he'll also heal outwardly at the resurrection. And he does all of this eagerly because he sympathizes with our suffering. He has compassion and mercy that reaches to the heavens. And it doesn't fade. His compassion doesn't fade like human compassion. Because he's God. Our Savior in heaven, we bow before you today and say, With the leper. You are able. You are so able to heal. You've done it with so many people. When you walked on the face of this earth, you touched so many people. Even around us, we've heard of others who've been healed from so many deep wounds. You're able. How thankful we are to know that you're also willing, that you're a God full of compassion, that your mercies are new every morning. We pray, Father, that you would be the healer of every heart and every soul in this room. We pray that those who've turned away from you, they've considered their lives beyond your reach, maybe beyond your power. We pray that you would penetrate through all of that falsehood and reach into their heart and bring your healing. May they come to you and throw themselves at your feet and find in you the Savior that this leper found. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.